work backwards. By that I mean, I'm going to discuss, first of all, the divorce process, and then work backwards whether it's proper to have a prenuptial agreement when you get married. There are various halachic prenuptial agreements, but I'm going to first discuss what happens in a divorce. So, first of all, as you obviously know, uh, the Torah is not like the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church does not allow divorce. Uh, the Torah does uh, have a whole halacha of uh, terminating a marriage uh, through divorce. This is in the book of Devorim. It is true that as a general matter, we consider divorce a very, very sad thing. There's a statement of our Chachamim. Anyone that divorces his wife, even the altar in heaven, the Mizbeach in Shemayim, sheds tears. So it's something that's uh, considered to be tragic. But it's also true that more and more uh, the divorce rate has risen very, very high in not only the Jewish community, but in the Orthodox, the from Jewish community, uh, in which, unfortunately, uh, marriages break down. Now, why that's so is really a sociological issue. I'm not going to give you a full exposition. Uh, part of it is that both chassans and kalas are not given enough emotional education before marriage. Perhaps they learned the halachos, but there's a lot more that you need to know besides the halacha. Thank you, thank you. Part of it is we live in a society of instant gratification where we're just not used to working on things. You know, I, uh, if things don't work, the phone doesn't work, throw it out. The computer doesn't work, replace it. If the marriage doesn't work, we're just used to kind of getting rid of things instead of working them out. In fact, it was interesting. There was, I'll just give you a secular example. A few, around 20 years ago, the state of Louisiana was also very disturbed with how easy it was to get a divorce. So they wanted to create two types of marriage licenses. When you applied for a marriage license, you could choose, meaning the couple could choose whether they want a regular marriage license or whether they want something that was called a covenantal marriage license. A regular marriage license, you could get divorced for any reason at all. That's called no-fault divorce, irreconcilable differences and the like. I'm talking about secular. Covenantal, you can only get divorced for adultery or you can get divorced for severe abuse and the like. And they wanted people to be able to choose what type of marriage they wanted. Do they want a marriage in which you're really committed to staying in the marriage or a marriage where easy come, easy go? Uh, but the law fell apart very quickly. The reason why it fell apart, <laughs> because imagine the situation you know, a bride and a groom, from a secular standpoint, they apply for a marriage license, and the clerk asks them, uh, which do you want? Do you want the covenantal marriage license or the regular marriage license? So wife says to her husband, for example, you know, honey, we're going to be together forever and ever and ever. Of course we'll go for the covenantal. Husband says, mm, well, I don't know. I think the regular one is good. You know, you can understand that if there's a difference of opinion, that could lead to a lot of machlokas. So they stopped it, but okay. But be it as it may, uh, the halacha is that uh, there is a parsha in the Torah, there is a uh, chapter in the Torah that deals with divorce. And the way it happens is the following. Uh, when a man and a woman have decided that they no longer want to be married, and they do the civil, whatever civil thing they have to do is what they do, but religiously, they both come in front of a rabbinical court that's called the Beit Din, three rabbis, 
Uh, and in addition to the three rabbis, there is a sofer, a scribe, the same type of person who writes the Torah scroll. And on a piece of parchment, the sofer writes a 12-line document, just 12 lines, called a get. Get is a Jewish divorce document. Uh, the most important uh, part of the get, the get is a standardized text, but it must be written specifically for this couple and for this divorce. You cannot use a pre-printed get. Uh, and uh, every line of the get has to be written for the parties. And uh, the most difficult part of writing the get, the get is a standardized text, but the names have to be exact. The names have to be very, very, very exact. Now, if your name is Sarah Bas Abraham or something, you know, not a big problem, but very often people might not have uh, Hebrew names, or they might go by their secular names, or they might have nicknames. And in a get, you have to include everything. So a get might say something like, uh, Avraham, who is called Avi, who is called Abe, who is called Abi, the son of David, that is called Davy, that is called Dave, you know, gives a get to his wife, Sarah, that is called Susha, that is called whatever, whatever it is, a millionaire, right? And they have to know, and it's not always so easy. It's a whole mini specialty in halacha, how to spell in Hebrew various types of foreign names. Because, you know, Hebrew does not have certain sounds. For example, Hebrew, at least the way we speak Hebrew, Yemenites have um, uh, actually a more expansive range of sounds. We don't have a TH in Hebrew. We don't have a TH sound. Uh, we don't have a soft G in Hebrew. We don't have a J sound. Again, Yemenites actually have been expanded. So there, there are all sorts of halachic questions. How do you spell those consonants? If a, if a woman's name is Charlotte, how do you spell it, right? Uh, if the man's name is Thomas, how do you spell it? So there's a whole mini specialty in halacha about names. There are manuals and the like. But be it as it may, assuming that all of this is worked out, it takes only around an hour to write a get, okay? And after it's written, it is signed in Hebrew by two witnesses. The witnesses have to be men. They cannot be related to each other, just like the wedding. You need two witnesses for the wedding. You need two witnesses to sign the get. And after the get is signed, the husband physically, I'll talk about an agent in a moment, physically hands the get to his wife, who is now his ex-wife. She tucks the get under her uh, arm, walks around for, you know, for one minute, and she is now halakhically divorced. What actually happens is she does not keep her get, because the get is kept by the basin in its files. So what the basin then does is they take the get, they mutilate it by an ex- so it shouldn't be used again by another couple having the same name, because you lose a get, you know, some other couple with the same name uh, may use the get. And then in lieu of the get, the woman and the man are both given letters that are signed by the basin that says a get ceremony was performed on a certain day, <coughs> and the woman is uh, divorced, and the man too is, is halakhically uh, divorced. Uh, that should be sufficient to, to prove divorce status. If the woman loses the letter, then what, well, she can just 
remember the base then, the base then will have the get on file and will be able to reissue the letter. Now, of course, since everything is stored electronically anyway, they can give her either a new letter or, or, or just uh, show her the get, scanner, you know, email, do a scan, the get, and the like, and that would be sufficient. Yeah, let me just finish the sentence. Now, that is a, what you will call, will call a plain vanilla get ceremony, meaning husband shows up, wife shows up, uh, at this point, the issue is not counseling, the issue is not reconciliation. This is at the very end of the process. Obviously, this may have been prefaced by a long period, maybe years, of counseling, of reconciliation, of trying to work things out. But I'm referring to the very end of the process, the very end of the get process. It's almost anticlimactic. Sometimes people who are getting divorced, particularly women, are a little shocked because it's not, a, it's not a very warm and fuzzy ceremony. It's kind of just very, very business-like, very quick, because all the things that needed to be discussed were already discussed prior to this point. Uh, now, once a woman receives a get, there are a few restrictions on her. Number one, she cannot marry a Kohen anymore. Any woman that received a get cannot marry a Kohen. Number two, she cannot marry anybody for at least 90 days. She has to wait 90 days before she can get married. Why is that so? So this is a, this is a rule from the Talmud itself. Uh, the Talmud says that it generally took three months for a pregnancy to be visible. So the, the fear might be the following. If a woman gets married before three months, and then seven months later has a child. So in the olden days, we wouldn't know, is this a seventh month child from the second husband? Or maybe it's a nine month or an eight month from the first husband. Because maybe when she got divorced, she was already pregnant. As a result, there is a possibility that a born child would not know who his father was. So to avoid any controversies regarding paternity, this is in the Talmud, they required that a woman wait three months, so at that point we could see if she would be pregnant or not, and if after three months, because assuming they may have had intercourse the night before the get, meaning you have to assume the worst case scenario, uh, once you've waited three months from the get, then even in a worst case scenario that they may have had intercourse and she got pregnant you know, the night before the get, you would know that, and then you wouldn't have a paternity issue, and if she's not pregnant, then you know that any child she has will be a child from the second husband. Now, obviously you're gonna raise a lot of questions. Is there a need for a three-month period when you have pregnancy tests, when you have DNA tests? So even if a child is born after seven months, you'll be able to figure it out. So again, as, as I often say, that these are machloksim, these are arguments in halacha, but it's still the standardized custom that a woman that is divorced waits three months. It's probably good advice anyway, because you should never jump into a new relationship on the rebound. That's also good advice for the husband. The husband technically does not have a three-month period. The husband, well, well, he's not pregnant. Uh, Wait, that's the only reason? Yes, that's the only reason. The reason is a pregnancy. Uh, but I, I, would, I would advise the husband to wait as, uh, as, as well. Let me just mention another rule to remember. I, I mentioned it before. Uh, 
a, uh, if either, if, if, well, let me talk about from the woman, then I'll mention it to men. This, this is a rule that applies to both. So a divorced woman cannot marry a Kohen. A divorced woman cannot marry anybody until she waits three months after the death. By the way, that's equally true if her husband dies. He has to wait three months after death. There's also a rule that if the woman had an, uh, an affair while she was married, and some people break this rule, unfortunately, she is not allowed to marry the man with whom she had an affair. And that is, that is true for her husband as well. If her husband had an affair with a married woman who then got uh, divorced or the like, he is not allowed to uh, marry that woman. So. Uh, the, the Torah says the Torah says that uh, a, a man that a man or a woman that commits adultery cannot marry the person with whom they committed adultery. Uh, and as they say, unfortunately, not everybody keeps this halacha, but but it is a halacha. There's no question that this is a binding halacha. Yeah. If a get is only twelve words, why does it take twelve so- lines, not twelve words? Oh, twelve lines. Twelve lines. No, a get is around a hundred words or more. Yeah. Uh, yes. So a woman can't marry a Cohen. Say again. The woman can't marry. A the woman cannot marry a Cohen. The man can marry a Bat Cohen. Yes. 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 Well, because again, uh, just the language of the Torah itself is the Torah says uh, a woman that is divorced cannot cannot marry a Cohen. It's only phrased in terms of that. I mean, technically, a woman that is the daughter of a Cohen is actually not a Cohen. She's called a Bat Cohen. I mean, technically, she is not a Cohen. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. If a woman is of this age that she can't have children anymore, yeah. does she still have to wait those Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent question. The, the Talmud itself discusses it and says, what if the woman uh, either is infertile, she has a hysterectomy, or what if she's just very old? Although we just read this last week, Parsha, about even a, no, but, but uh, she doesn't have a child. So the, log, the logic of waiting, you're correct, does not apply. And she, logically, she shouldn't have to wait. But this is an example of the halacha giving a uniform rule just so to make things simpler, we don't differentiate between uh, one situation and another situation. So we still do wait uh, 90 days. Yeah. Um, is there like a, the specifics of the names in the marriage contract or only the, the divorce contract? Uh, we actually are, are concerned for the marriage contract as well, but not as strict. So for example, the ketubah, which is the marriage contract, does not have nicknames that much. Uh, but in a get, you kind of put in every every nickname, so it can take a while. Meaning the sofer has to, in front of the rabbis, they have to figure out what names we put in, what names we don't put in, and uh, and and the like. And how do you spell them in Hebrew? Because the get is actually the get is written in Aramaic, but but Aramaic is uh, a Semitic language, so the spelling rules are the same rules as 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 Hebrew. Okay, this is how a get normally works. As I say, the get ceremony itself, barring some complication, like she has an impossible to spell name, uh, as I say, only takes around 45 minutes. Uh, The cost of the proceeding may vary, but it's between $200 and $400, so it's not a huge amount of money, and the cost should be payable by the husband. Uh, If that amount of money is too difficult. Uh, a get is never withheld for, because of the inability to pay that particular cost. It'll be waived or whatever whatever it would be. Now, again, this, I'm doing plain vanilla get in here. I'm gonna get, we'll get, things will get much more complicated as we go through it. Again, the plural of get is gitten. 
Gitin is the plural of the word get. Um, now, what if husband and wife cannot stand each other? What if they don't want to be uh, in each other's sight? Or what if husband and wife are in different countries? Husband's in America, wife is in Israel. Or husband's in uh, Israel, wife is in America. So there is a concept in halacha called shaliach, right? As Chabad people, you know about a shaliach, but a shaliach is not only somebody who runs a Chabad house. Uh, shaliach means an emissary. And there is a rule that if, I, if, 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 if a husband wants to divorce his wife, he may do so through proxy, through an agent. And if the wife is, wants to receive a get, not directly from the husband, she can also designate an agent. So you can have a lot of possibilities. You can have husband giving it to wife. You can have husband giving it to wife's shaliach. You can have husband's shaliach giving it to wife. Or you can have husband's shaliach giving it to wife's shaliach. You can actually have a situation where neither the husband nor the wife are actually involved in the get process. Uh, but the designation of a shaliach has technicalities and it has to be approved by the Beit Din. There are documents that have to be filled out. It's a very detailed, meticulous process. Uh, in fact, there are standardized manuals that give you the steps, not, not you, but give the rabbi the steps. And the rabbi is supposed to follow these steps. It's like 101 steps, including even questions that the couple has to be asked. Are you accepting this get? Are you giving this get out of your free will, etc., without, without coercion? Okay, that is a get. And as I indicated, the woman herself, uh, nor the man, they do not keep the get. The get is kept by the Beit Din. And the uh, people are given uh, a letter attesting to the fact that they have been halachically divorced. Judaism does not recognize the validity of a civil divorce. Even after a civil divorce has been granted by the state of Maryland or New York or California or England or France, in the eyes of Jewish law, they are still halachically married until the get ceremony has taken place, yeah. So if a couple only gets a civil divorce and they don't have the get ceremony, does that affect their future relationships? Well, it absolutely does. Uh, if, if, a, if, 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 if a woman gets married after a civil divorce, but before she has received mm -hmm. her get, in the eyes of halacha, even though her marriage is legal, in the eyes of halacha, she is guilty of adultery. Well, that's how you think we're married. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at length. The need for a get, the need for a halachic get, is only when there was a halachic marriage. A marriage that was not halachically valid to begin with does not need a get. So in every case, when I talk about a get, we are presupposing a valid halachic marriage. Okay, so this is what we're going to talk about. I'm giving you just a simple case, and then we're going to talk about the possibility of one party holding up the other party. Uh, yeah. Um, so what happens if like they get a, like a civil divorce, but then the husband or wife refuses to do Okay, this, this is really what we're going to talk about. Now, this is actually the topic. I'm not, I'm not here just to tell you how a get works. I actually want to discuss uh, that issue at very, very great length. Uh, yeah. Um, if someone is like 
in other words, like some conversions aren't accepted in Israel from other countries. Yeah. Is it the same case that if someone gets married in the country, in Israel, and they move to another country together and they go through a Beth Din, which is a different one to the one that they got married yep. at, and they get a get, are there some that aren't accepted? No, there are some gets that are not accepted, mm-hmm. gitten that are not accepted. Uh, that is possible, although it's rare, meaning a simple example would be uh, a get that is uh, issued under the conservative reform movement. Uh, now, the reform movement does not do gets, but the conservative movement does. And uh, some of those get may be called into question and would not be accepted. It's very similar to marriage. It's similar to conversion. Get has a similar issue. Uh, but most of the time, uh, gets are, are not written by every average rabbi. The average rabbi of a synagogue will not do a get. I mean, let's say, you know, you have a very good rabbi, and uh, unfortunately a couple wants to get divorced. The rabbi will not do the get. He will refer them to a more, uh, more uh, reputable court, based him. So a get is, a, is what you might call a halachic specialty. It's not done by the average uh, rabbi. So because of that, the gets tend to have a fair amount of acceptance because there's a relatively small group of rabbis that do get and they're known worldwide for their expertise. Yeah. Are there any rules about like reversing a get? So if a couple gets divorced and some circumstances change and then they want to get remarried? Oh, okay, so, so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, first of all, like this. Uh, after a couple has been divorced, with a get, halakhically, they are permitted to get remarried. Even if the man is a Kohen? No, no, except if the man is a Kohen, right? There, there you have a real problem. However, there is one rule, and this is in the Torah, and this is a very interesting rule. A man divorces his wife, she then gets married to, to another man, and she is either divorced or widowed from the second husband, she cannot go back to the first husband. This is very interesting. If he divorces his wife and she did not marry another man, if he's not a Kohen, he could remarry her. If, however, she married another man with a halakhically valid marriage, and then she's either widowed or divorced again, he cannot take her back. This is a prohibition in the Torah, explicit. This is an explicit prohibition in the Torah. This is called the prohibition of machzir gerushato, taking back your divorced wife when she has been married to a person in between. What is the logic of that rule? Is there a logic? There actually is a logic to that rule. The logic of that rule is it takes away the, the, the incentive that a first husband might have to just try to destroy the second marriage. I mean, let's say he divorced his wife and now he has buyer's regrets. He wants to marry her again, but she married somebody else. Well, if halakhically he would be allowed to marry her when she gets divorced from the second guy, he might do things to make her hate her second husband. But now that he knows, he cannot get her back no matter what. So there are situations that are very, very sad. I mean, I I know Kohanim themselves who in a moment of anger, I mean, it's not just a moment, it takes time, but because they were angry and hurt, they demanded a divorce process and the wife didn't want it. And, you know, he insisted and insisted and insisted till she finally broke down. And then, of course, as soon as he gives her the get, you know, he gets over his temper tantrum and he wants to uh, remarry her and that he cannot. Now, 
you're asking me another question. Okay, he can't remarry her if she has a get, but is there a way to undo the get? Uh, theoretically, there might, but that would be extremely rare. Uh, if, for example, the get was given through a fraudulent misrepresentation. So he gave the get under fraud. He gave the get under coercion. He gave the get under duress. So in such a case, the get could be declared an invalid get. Are you a lawyer? Huh? Are you a lawyer? I am a lawyer, yes. Why, did I talk about the lawyer? Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not a practicing lawyer, but I was a law professor for, for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. So there are ways of invalidating that, uh, but it's very, very rare. Very rare. So um, for most purposes, if he's a Cohen and he gives her a get, that's going to be, that's going to be it. Yeah. If a man gets remarried and then divorces a widow, can he marry the first wife? Yes. Yes. Once again, uh, the Torah looks at it from the perspective of the woman remarrying. That that's called machzer grushaso. Well, I think the theory would be that uh, the one who is most likely to engage in the chicanery of trying to make the second marriage bad would be the husband. The husband is more likely to be a negative force than the wife. The wife is, you know, at least the theory is, gonna be less involved in trying to undermine her husband's uh, second, uh, second marriage. Yeah? Uh, sorry if you've talked about this before, yeah. but if a woman has a civil marriage and a civil divorce, but never a halakha, or yes. a halakha marriage, yeah. then can she marry a Cohen? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, she can. Because again, let, let me let me remind you of this. This is important. A lot of people have a misconception. Technically, no, no. Okay, so this is this is a big mistake. A lot of people make. I don't know why they make this mistake. Technically, if a woman had a non-halachic marriage, and then she got a civil divorce, she is not a virgin. Of course, she is not a virgin, but she's also not a divorcee because she was not halachically married. Never had a halachic divorce. A Kohen is allowed to marry a woman that is not a virgin. A Kohen can marry a widow, for example. A Kohen can even marry a woman that had uh, intercourse outside of marriage. And a Kohen can marry a civilly divorced woman from a non-halachic marriage. However, you'll remember, I, you know, I went over this, if she had relations with a non-Jew, she cannot marry a Kohen. But if the only people she had relations with were Jews, she does not have to be a virgin. For some reason, uh, people uh, get that halacha wrong. Yeah? I thought that the issue with a woman getting divorced and going back to her husband was the fact that she slept with someone else. Is that not the issue? Well, it is not the issue, and I'll, I'll prove it to you that it's not the issue, because let's say a man divorced his wife and she slept with someone else but did not get married to them halachically she is allowed to go back to her first husband. So it's not the living together that creates the iser, the prohibition of machsir guru chateau. It is the creation of a second marital bond. I mean, clearly, from the halachic uh, construct, that is what you see the situation, situation is. Uh, yeah. Isn't it not true the other way because a man could technically previously be polygamous? So he could have another wife the whole time while he divorces the first one, and like that—that that would be true also. That would, uh, right. that would that would be another another reason why you couldn't apply the halacha. That, that that's a good point. Now, um, again, we're we're going to get obviously the main reason I'm talking about this is the topic I haven't gotten to yet, but it's the question that you've already raised. 
about what happens if the man refuses to give a get or the woman refuses to accept. That's going to be our main topic. But in order to get clarity on this, you just need to get a picture of how this works generally. By the way, I had mentioned you've got to wait three months because maybe the woman's pregnant. What if she is pregnant? In other words, what if a man divorces his wife while she's pregnant? What exactly happens? So here we have an interesting rule, which again, this may strike you the wrong way. First of all, let me point out the obvious rule. The obvious rule is divorcing a pregnant woman does not disavow paternity of the offspring. I mean, that, that's very, very obvious, meaning a man divorces his wife while pregnant, that is still his child, and halachically he has full halachic as well as legal responsibility for the child, right? So you can't divorce your kid. Uh, okay, so that, that's, that's simple, that, that's obvious. But what's interesting is the woman is not allowed to get married while she is pregnant. And indeed, she's not allowed to get married until the child's second birthday. That, that's kind of a bummer. That's kind of a bummer. Uh, and that is... That is that is that is, that, is, that is that is a long time. That is a long time. Uh, well, well, yes. I mean, the problem. Yeah, the, the problem is this. The problem that the Gemara, the problem the Gemara identified was this. The problem the Gemara identified was that uh, if she has a child, I mean, or to put it another way, if a woman is is if a woman is divorced and she has a child under two she cannot get married till the child is two. In other words, if she's pregnant, she has to wait till the child is two. If the child is six months, she has to wait a year and a half. I mean, in other words, a woman cannot get married until her youngest child is at least two years old. The youngest child only is Well, yeah, yeah. in other words, uh, if she has a child under two, she has to wait until the child is two. Well, if the youngest child is two, the older children are certainly older than two. The reason this is so is... Chazal, our sages thought that the optimal amount of time that a mother should nurse a child, if it's possible, is two years. That was considered to be the healthiest amount of nursing. And the fear would be that the second husband might be a meanie in various ways and not be so interested in her child from another marriage, and he might interfere uh, with letting her nurse. He may not like it for whatever reason. So therefore, the sages enacted for the welfare of the child that uh, nursing essentially be completed before she marries a second a second guy. Is that also with a widow? Huh? Is that also with a widow? Uh, yes, yes, it is. It's a widow and a divorcee. It's not only a divorce; it's for widow, widow as well. So these are some uh, strange restrictions. Uh, she has to wait three months. If she's not pregnant, go ahead. If she is pregnant, she has to wait. Uh, Wait until the baby's born, and then two years, two years after that, yeah. Even if you had a kid out of wedlock. Yes, yes, yes. Even a kid out of wedlock. But but, but well, well, do you do you mean it's the it's the guy that she marries kid kid? Yeah. Like oh no no no. Like they're it, not married. They have a kid. No no no. There, there you don't have to wait because that's his kid. But how but, do you know it's his kid? How do you know? Let's say he acknowledges. Let's say he says it's my my my, my child. If, if he if he if if he says this is his child, then for sure he's not going to sabotage the uh, the nursing. It's only if she had a child from. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I understand that some of these reasons uh, may, may not uh, be so understandable in modern society, 
but these are halachos that are still in the Shulchan Aruch that you know a divorced woman or a widow needs to be needs to be aware of uh, that uh, the Kohen rule number one the 90 day rule uh, number two and then the rule for pregnant and uh, nursing mothers now if the woman discontinued nursing early let's say she stopped nursing the baby then there may be heterim for her to marry earlier but as long as she's nursing she cannot get married until uh, two years yeah what if she's still nursing the baby past two years old but she feels ready to get married so at that point it's permitted meaning to say the chachamim were not concerned Mm-hmm. with a discontinuation of nursing after the age of two because they said, you know... Uh, even if he messes with it, oh well, the child... Yeah, if he messes with it, but he's already had what he bas- what the child basically... But what if some women, they can't nurse, so from the moment the baby's born, they're not nursing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What if she does not nursing at all? Yeah. So there may be, again, th- this is discussed in the Talmud, different issues about a woman who uh, does not nurse, cannot nurse. So there may be dispensations to get married earlier at that point. Uh, but the Chachamim are still a little concerned that she might deliberately stop nursing. In her, so that's also a form of sabotage in order to get married. Yeah. Can the woman date during that time? She just can't get married? Uh, she can date, yeah, she can date. Uh, now, a woman should not date before she gets a get. This is an interesting issue. Uh, and this happens a lot. A woman gets a civil divorce. The get is going to come down the pike. But right now, she does not have a get. Can she meet people socially? Well, I mean, I don't mean at a Shabbos table, but I mean, can she, can she, I mean, that you can do. But I mean, can, can she go to a restaurant with somebody? Can she date, basically? Um, you know, I wouldn't call this a matter of strict halacha, but, but it's considered to be a very, very improper practice for a couple, for either a man or a woman who is not yet halachically divorced to seek any type of romantic attachments in anticipation of a possible marriage because it's improper. It's, I mean, you know, it's, it's like saying, you know, you're still married. Because remember, even though you're civilly divorced, if there was a halachic marriage, you are still halachically married till the get ceremony. So neither the husband nor the wife, and they still are husband and wife, should be dating or seeing other women in that, in that way. But that's a little different if there is a get, but the only problem is there's a nursing restriction or during the 90 days, there we're not so, so strict on it. Yeah. Does a widow need a get? No, a widow does not need a get. There are two ways. The way the Mishnah describes it, <laughs> this may not be the most beautiful description of marriage. It says, a woman gets her freedom in two ways. Uh, she gets her freedom by get, or she gets her freedom by death of the husband. I mean, I hate to describe marriage as the woman gets her freedom, but that's, that's kind of how the Mishnah uh, describes it. In fact, there's a famous story. Great, great rabbi. There was a man who refused to give his wife a get. And that was, as we're going to see, that was a, that's a very great problem. So the great rabbi calls the man in and says to the man, did you ever learn Mishnah? He says, yeah. So he takes out the tractate on marriage where it says, a woman gets her freedom by get or death of the husband. He says, I'm giving you a choice. You have two ways to help your wife. Get or death of husband. Which do you want to do? So the man was very offended. He thought he was being threatened by this rabbi. So he just leaves. He storms out of the house. He trips on a rock and he you know, hits his head and he dies on the spot. You know, I mean, the rabbi told him, I'm giving you a choice. <laughs> the person uh, didn't respond to the get choice. So the other thing happened. 
Halvina, <laughs> we don't have, you know, we don't have too many rabbis like that. This was Rabbi Eki Vega, who was actually a very, very great rabbi around uh, 250 years ago. Oh, is that Oh, you know Rabbi Eki Vega? How do you know Rabbi Eki Vega? He, there's a story about him yeah. in The Coach of Humility. Have you ever heard it? Yeah. Wait, which one? I may, I may have heard it. What, what? It's called The Coach, The Story. Is oh, The Coach. coach. Yes, yes, yes. That's a funny story. He switched clothing with, the, with, this, with this coachman? No. Is that it? Oh, okay. <laughs> That's another one. Well, uh, can, can, you, can you recount it in relatively short? Uh, yeah, he's, com- he's coming into a town yes. with another like huge tour giant rabbi, and they're both in this coach. Yes. The people in the town get so excited that they run out and they unhatch, unlatch. Oh, the yes, 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 yes. And I, they both slip out. Right, they both, each one was honoring the other one. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Now, the other story I'll tell you, I'll tell you another coachman story with Rabbi Kiva Eger is that uh, he was in a carriage, like a stagecoach, and it was raining, so the driver was soaking wet. So Rabbi Kivager says, listen, I'm sitting uh, in an enclosed area, why don't we exchange clothes? I'll wear, your, I'll wear your wet clothes because I'm sitting in a warm place, and at least you'll have dry clothes for the rest of the trip, you know, till they get wet again. So it turns out that the coachman is wearing rabbinical garb, and Rabbi Kivager is wearing, uh, you know, the clothes of a coachman. So they get to an inn, and there's a lot of great rabbis there, and they know Rabbi Kivager is coming, so they're surrounding him to ask him all of their difficult questions. So they surround the coachman, they think he's the rabbi, and they start asking him all sorts of hard questions. The coachman doesn't know anything, but the coachman was very bright. The coachman says, these are such stupid questions, even my coachman can answer it. So he says, ask him, don't bother me. Yeah. Right, so that's the, other, that's the other story, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to talk about this. Obviously, these are very, very important questions. But the one thing I can say is this. We'll talk about what does it mean to initiate a get. The answer is yes. But the ceremony of the get is only one direction. The ceremony is from the man or his shaliach to the woman or her shaliach. So a woman can initiate the process. We're going to have to explain what that means but she cannot give the get. The get must be given. And in a way, it's symmetrical to marriage. Marriage is the same way. Uh, the man must give the bride a ring. This is why... But that's not a law or anything. No, that is a law. It, it doesn't have to be a ring. That's true. But, oh, no, you're saying... But it, 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 could be, it could be a coin. In other words, you could ma- a man can marry a woman by giving her a penny. Uh, but, I, thought, I thought you were talking about civil. No, no, I'm talking about halakha. But the, the Jewish wedding ceremony requires that the man give the woman something of value. A ring is a minog. It doesn't have to be a ring, but it has to be something. It could be a quarter. It could be a candy. It could be a Mike and Ike, maybe probably two Mike and Ikes, but whatever it would be. Uh, but it has to be something of value that she accepts. Yeah. No, but there's no couple where the court will force him to marry her. Meaning if he says, I was flat out refused to give her anything, and she doesn't get married, that's not an issue. But the other way around is much more of an issue. That's correct, and we'll talk, we'll talk about that. Uh, obviously, nobody can be forced to marry anybody else. Right. But we will see that sometimes you can be forced to divorce because you're holding somebody captive. Uh, yeah? Was that um, story you said about the, the guy? About the coachman? Which... No, getting, getting his... Uh, oh, 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 uh, died. Was that a story or was that a joke? Uh, well, 
it was said as a story, you know. Uh, it, was, it was not meant to be funny. Now, now, whether 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 now whether it's a true story, I don't I don't know. It's it's hard to know because you know I mean you know listen you hear many stories about great uh, rabbis and great uh, rebbe's, uh, you know are they all true? There's an old saying. It says anyone who believes all Hasidic stories is a fool. But if you don't believe uh, any of them, you're a heretic, meaning uh, they could have happened. Maybe they happened, maybe they didn't, but if one believes that a person is a great tzaddik and a very holy person, then they can do things that regular human beings cannot, uh, cannot do. You know? uh, so whether they actually did it or not, but still we believe that such a thing is possible. Rebbe Kivager did not kill the person. Rebbe Kivager just said, if you don't give a get to your wife, you know, God's going to punish you. And God responded to that tzaddik uh, right, 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 right away. Okay, yeah? You mentioned before that like, someone asked if a get can go back on a get, and you said that in certain situations, like, the get was given under force? Well, under force, yep. Then you could technically say that it wasn't a certain valid get, but yep. then there also is the whole idea of forcing someone to get 100% correct. And uh, again, we, we're getting ahead of ourselves. The basic idea is, if it was force authorized by a basin, then it is a good get and you can't invalidate it. But if it was force that was not authorized by a basin, then the get is invalid and it can be like taken like away. Yes, this is, a very, this is a very important distinction. Uh, a wife wants to get a get. And on her own, without getting the uh, permission of a basin, she simply hires the mafia to beat up her husband, put a gun to his head, and basically say, give a get or we'll, this is kind of the more vicious Rebbe Kivager story, or your wife will be permitted to marry in another way. Uh, if a get was written under those circumstances, it is an invalid get, and she's actually not divorced. Uh, but on the other hand, we're going to see, again, we're getting, I'm getting ahead of myself, that if a Beit Din authorizes coercion, and we'll talk about when that's so, then it would be good. So there is such a thing as a forced get, but it has to work through a, a baked-in baked system. Okay, now, there is a Torah law here, and then there's a rabbinic law. Under Torah law, and again, I, I'm going to keep on telling you things that are going to be uh, you know, hard to accept. Under Torah law, a man can divorce his wife whether she likes it or not. You did not require the consent of the woman, which would actually mean uh, they're sitting at the breakfast table. He has a get that's signed by witnesses. It has to be signed by witnesses. And he says, you know, honey, uh, I got some mail for you. Throw it. She opens it up and says, ah, you know. Uh, <laughs> she, she, she is divorced. In other words, you don't need... Under Torah law, underlying Torah law, under Torah law, you don't need her consent or her permission. Except the, in cases, like there are cases listed in Torah that say like, and he will not be able to... Yes, there, there, are, there are two unusual cases. Uh, one is, in fact, this case also will, will cause problems. The Torah says if a man uh, raped a single woman she has the right to demand. Now, she doesn't have to marry him, of course not. She normally wouldn't want to, but she has the right to demand that he marry her if for whatever reason she wants that, and he's not allowed to divorce her. What? 
Now again, I understand this is very. I understand this is a very bizarre law uh, to contemporary ears, because one could not imagine in a million years that a rape victim would want to marry the rapist. But but you have to remember that uh, to some degree, even today, that sometimes a victim of rape might have found it difficult to find a marriage partner in the world. There might be prejudice and the like. And sometimes the rapist, sometimes, we call it rape, but you know, it, it may not have been, I mean, I know rape is always is usually an act of violence, it's not an act of love, but one could imagine a scenario where there was some affection, there was some relationship. Date rape might be an example, right? Date rape might be an example where there, w- there could have been even a relationship between two people in which they even cared about each other, but the man crossed boundaries that were not appropriate. So think about it that way. So in such a situation, she has the right, it's her right, she has the right to demand that he marry her. She also has the right to say, you know, get out of my life, but, but she has the right to say, I, you know, you have to marry me, and if he marries her, he cannot divorce her. He's kind of stuck until she wants it. Okay, that's a rare case. Another example is, if a man made a slanderous accusation against his wife, he essentially accused his wife of adultery, and it was not true, then once again, unless she wants the divorce, he cannot divorce her. Okay, those are two rare cases. But as a general rule, a man can divorce his wife without, under Torah law, under Torah law, without her consent. However, that is no longer the halacha. And here we have to fast forward to the 11th century, the 10 hundreds. Now this is after the Talmud, this is after the Talmud. And I've mentioned this before, but just to, to, to review it quickly. Uh, in Germany, there was a Beit Din that was headed by a very, very esteemed rabbi. He's called Rabbi Gershon, Gershom, rather, Gershom. He was the teacher of the teacher of Rashi, so he was even before Rashi. And Rabbeinu Gershom made a number of enactments that became accepted by most of the Jewish people. One of them is uh, the practice of male polygamy was prohibited, so men cannot have more than one wife. And the second practice is Jewish divorce must be by mutual consent, meaning a woman, unless the basin is involved, we'll talk about that, a woman cannot force a man to give a get, but a man cannot force a woman to receive a get. Uh, Both people have to agree to the get process. So bisman hazeh, that means today, uh, with some rare exceptions I'll get to, get, the get process is a process, at the end at least, of mutual consent. Now obviously initially one might have been opposed and that has to be worked out, but when everything is, all the dust settles and you're at the very end of the process, the Beit Din will not write a get unless the husband says, I, I, I want this, and the wife says, I'm willing to go through this. Mutual consent. So this is a very important deviation from the original law of the Torah, which did permit a man to divorce a woman even against her will. In fact, that was why there was a ketubah. It's so fascinating. Why did the Chachamim create a marriage settlement in the, in the, in the event of divorce? The reason is 
they wanted to make a deterrent on a man from divorcing his wife against her will by telling him, if you do that, you got to pay her a lot of money. Now, we still have a ketubah today, but the original rationale doesn't apply because today he cannot divorce her against her will. He can only divorce her if she agrees. Nevertheless, the ketubah dates from a time when a man could divorce his wife against her will, and the ketubah was the disincentive to do so by creating uh, financial penalties. Okay. All right, so this is kind of the background of how a get works, what a get is, uh, etc. Um, it's interesting, what does the word get mean anyway in Hebrew? Get, it's a strange word. Uh, so get is actually a term that just means document. In fact, a promissory note could be called a get. And sometimes in the Talmud, the word get is not only referring to a divorce document, just referring to a document, an IOU, a, a, a deed, a uh, document of sale. However, the Vilna Gaon gives a beautiful interpretation why get became so specifically connected to a divorce. And only the Vilna Gaon could figure this out, and this is before computers. He said, Gimel and Tess, these are the two letters, Gimel and Tess, are the only two letters that never appear next to each other in the Chumash. See, the Chumash doesn't use the word get. The Chumash talks about sefer krisus, that means a document of separation. Get is a rabbinic term. So the Vilna Gaon says, every other pair of letters of the Aleph base, you can always find one word where those two letters appear together, whether it's Aleph and Bays, Aleph and Gimel, Aleph and Tess. Any combination, take any combination of two letters, you will find them together. But Gimel and Tess never appear together at all. There is no syllable, there's no phoneme in the Chumash that has get, Gimel, Tess. And therefore, it is the paradigm of ultimate separation. Gimel and Tess. And that is why the term get, which is a rabbinic term for any legal document, became especially utilized uh, for, um, uh, for divorce documents. Uh, I also mentioned before that uh, a get is written in 12 lines. Now, this is not going to make it no good if you do it in 13 lines, but it's customary that a get is written in 12 lines. That also has a symbolic significance. The symbolic significance is, in a safer Torah, Right? You have the five books of Moses and the Torah scroll. But between one book and the other, there's always four lines, four blank lines. For example, from the end of Bracious, Genesis, to the beginning of Exodus, if you just opened up a Torah scroll, you would see four blank lines. So let's figure out how many blanks you're going to have in the Torah scroll. Between Genesis and Exodus, four blank lines. Between Exodus and Leviticus, four blank lines. Between Leviticus and Numbers, four blank lines. Now between Numbers and Deuteronomy, you don't have blank lines because Deuteronomy is a review of the Torah, so it's not considered to be so separate from what came before. So therefore, between Genesis, Exodus, four. Between Exodus, Leviticus, four. Between Leviticus, Numbers, four. Four times three is 12. In other words, in a Sefer Torah, those are the 12 lines that separate, 
12 blank spaces that separate one book of the Torah from the other book. Therefore, 12 is symbolic of that separation. That is why a get is 12, customarily, to be 12 uh, lines. Uh, yeah, your question? Yeah. Why? Um, oh, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's right, yeah. What about the word star? Doesn't star mean a document? Yes, yes, star, star is the more common do- word for uh, mm-hmm. legal documents. Okay. Uh, get is a synonym. synonym. Get is a, is a rabbinic synonym for it. Yeah. I'm sorry, someone had another, another question about that. Okay, alrighty. So, okay, so based on all of this, we now have the following problem. And that is, let's say a marriage is really bad. Uh, a woman wants a divorce. Legally, at least outside of Israel, she could file for a civil divorce and she could get it. Okay, that's not a problem. But halachically, she is not, she is not allowed to marry until she has a get. The husband must authorize the get. What if the husband does not authorize the get? The husband refuses. Now, why would a husband refuse? There are a lot of reasons why husbands might refuse. Some of them might be good reasons. Most of them are bad reasons. The good reasons might be that he genuinely wants reconciliation, he genuinely loves her and he cares about her and he feels that things could be worked out maybe yes, maybe not that's the minority of cases unfortunately uh, other reasons why he withholds a get is he's using it as leverage in a blackmail so for example the husband might say I will give you a get if you give me all the property that we have, meaning give up the house or even, I will give you a get if you release me from child support or alimony. Or I will give you a get if you give me sole custody of our children. Or I'll give you a get if you give me $100,000. Right? That's called withholding the get because of blackmail, leverage. Well, leverage is a more polite word, meaning uh, the husband might describe it. I'm using the get as legitimate bargaining leverage in our negotiations. That, that makes it sound like, you know, not so bad. In reality, he's using the get just to blackmail her into giving up things that are very important to her. Right? Most of the time, that's considered to be bad. Right? Husband's a bad guy. Uh, there's a third group of husbands, right? So some husbands want reconciliation. Maybe they're reasonable, maybe they're not. Sometimes the, the guy might be so crazy that things can't work out, but sometimes you know, maybe there's a chance. So that's one category, the person who really wants the marriage to, to, to uh, survive in a good way. Second category of withholding get husbands are blackmail, property, child custody, bribe, whatever it would be. And the third category is the worst of all, and that is plain malice he doesn't want anything he's not asking for anything he just says I'm going to make you suffer the rest of your life no matter what and he doesn't care what what happens to him he's not even asking for anything he says there's nothing you can give me that will convince me to give you a get so these are the three types of situations that women might face in a worst case scenario one is the husband who wants a reconciliation, even though that may not be reasonable. The other is the husband that's demanding some blackmail concession. 
And the third is the husband that is simply malicious through hatred and anger. In all of these cases, the woman is stuck. The woman is stuck because she cannot halakhically marry without a get. If she tries to live with a man without a get, she is committing adultery. She is violating the Ten Commandments. If she has a child from that other man, we talked about this, the child is what we call a mamzer. He's a, he's a Jew, but he's not, he's not allowed to marry other Jews. Right? He has a stigma of illegitimacy. Mamzer. So she's in a very, very serious situation. There is a term that this woman is given. She is described as aguna. Maybe you, you've come across the term. Aguna. Aguna, plural is agunot. Aguna is uh, an anchored woman, a woman that's stuck, a woman that is unable to get married because her husband has not authorized the get process. And therefore, if she tries to marry, she would be guilty of adultery and her children would have a stigma of mamzer. And uh, one of the major, major halachic issues that the Jewish world is grappling with is what can be done to resolve the plight of the agunot. Now, this, this, is, this is indeed a very, very serious problem, but I want to point out at the outset that it shouldn't be made more of a problem than it really is, meaning people will sometimes tell you there are thousands of women out there that are agunot. Uh, that, that is absolutely not true. At any given time, again, I, I don't mean to say even if there's one woman that's a very serious problem, I don't mean to demean the suffering of even one person. But typically, if you simply ask how many agunot are there uh, in the world, even at any given time, it would probably be a uh, hundred or less. Again, that, that, that's a problem. We've got to do something about it. But it is not tens of thousands of women that are gunot. Now you may ask, so how come the newspapers report tens of thousands of women? The, the reason is they use the term aguna too early in the process. Uh, in other words, if a woman says, I want to get, and the husband says, let's talk about it, she's not an aguna at that point. There's still a process that needs to go. So if the woman hasn't gone to Beit Din, she hasn't tried the channels of getting a get, through the halachic channels, she's not an aguna, she simply hasn't followed the steps she needs to follow. To be an aguna, she has to have, we'll talk about this, she had to have followed the process, and the process is not working for her. Until you follow the process, you're not an aguna. So there may be thousands of women who would like to get divorced from their husband, but they're not agunotes until the basin has failed them in various ways. If they haven't even gone to the Beit Din, they are not yet Agunot. Yeah. Is it Aguna with an Aleph or an Ayin? So it's Ayin. So uh, Aguna is uh, Ayin, Gimel, Vav, Nun, Aleph, Aguna. And Agunot is Aleph, Gimel, Vav, Nun, Vav. Wait, Aleph, Gimel? I'm sorry, Ayin, Ayin, Ayin. The first letter is Ayin. Ayin, Gimel, that's correct. Uh, yeah, the spelling is right in back of you. Perfect. And agunot is just nun vav uh, saf. Thank you. Agunot. Yeah, another another vav. Yeah, another vav. Yeah, agunot. 
Uh, by the way, if you if you uh, anyone here is an expert in Tanakh, can anyone? Okay, this would be a very hard question unless you you know Tanakh very well. Can anyone recall where a word whose shorish is aguna does appear in the famous book of uh, the Bible? Okay, can that's, you tell us which that's real. That's really that's really an unfair question. It's it's it's, it's, it's Megillat Rut. When, when Naomi is trying to tell her daughters-in-law to go back home and not come back to her, because not, go, not, not come back to her to Israel, she says, even if I would have, she says, I'm too old to have children that you can marry, and even if I would get pregnant tonight and give birth to a child, halahen te'agena, are you going to anchor yourself and wait so many years until they grow up? Te agena, haguna. Are you going to anchor yourselves? Uh, by the way, there's another type of haguna. I'll, I'll call it type one haguna, type two haguna. We're going to be talking about the haguna who cannot get married because her husband is not giving her a get. And that's a serious problem, although it's not numerically as great as people say, but it is a very, very serious problem for women who are undergoing this problem. However, there's another type of aguna, which is what you might call missing in action, undetermined death. This is a whole other part of aguna, and that is, how do you establish the death, not divorce, how do you establish the death of a missing person? This was a problem in the aftermath of the Holocaust, Concentration camp people just disappeared. We don't know if they were killed or not. This was, this was a problem in the aftermath of the World Trade Center when people may have been in the building, they haven't been accounted for, and we didn't find body parts. And this is a problem with soldiers and even civilians who are kidnapped by terrorists, and we don't know if they're dead or alive. Now, the wives are also called agunot, but it's a totally different halachic problem. The problem of the aguna that we were talking about until now is a problem of a woman whose husband is alive but is refusing to give her a get. That's one type of aguna problem, and that's the one we're going to mainly talk about. There is another aguna problem when we don't know if someone is dead or alive. And that's a very, very serious problem as well. Let me explain why. Under secular law, if a person has an unexplained absence for seven years, they can be declared legally dead. So a woman that was married to a guy and the guy disappeared for seven years, no one heard anything about him, she could actually be declared a widow and be permitted to marry. And even if the guy shows up, uh, he's dead, so to to speak. Remember... um, Okay, there was a scene in, in, the, in the novel Catch-22 about that, but okay. Uh, now, uh, in halacha, there is no such thing as presumption of death by unexplained absence. So the fact that your husband was in the World Trade Center on September 11th and didn't come home, that does not prove that he died. Maybe he got off the last minute and had amnesia, meaning halacha requires some type of tangible evidence. Same thing with the Holocaust. The fact that somebody was in Auschwitz and then didn't identify himself, that is not enough proof that he's dead. So this is a very agonizing issue. And I can tell you 
that we actually know that there were people who jumped out of the window on September 11th from the 99th floor of the World Trade Center. They jumped out of the window and instead of dying in the fire, okay, but whether that's permitted or not is a, is a question, but they actually placed a cell phone call to their rabbi in which they said, I am, they gave their name, I am so-and-so, the husband of so-and-so. I am telling you that I am jumping to my death right now. They called the rabbi in order that there should be some testimony that uh, he's dying, that he's, that he's going to die, and that would be halachically sufficient to allow the wives to remarry. So that's a whole that other... Sufficient? Uh, it is halachically Why sufficient. Why is that sufficient? Well, uh, if the statement is... Now, now if, listen, if somebody simply says, I'm depressed, I'm thinking of committing suicide, that's not halachically sufficient because people can change their minds. But if somebody is uh, saying that they're going to do something that uh, is imminent, they're saying... That they're I am, going to or that they are doing? Well, they're going to do it right now. They're saying they're doing something right now. Uh, I think he may have called even... I'm not, I don't think it would have been possible for him to call after he jumped. I, I think it, things are too fast. But it was right before, right before he jumped. So that's considered to be halakhically permissible. So these are very, very difficult issues. I'm not going to talk about them today. That's not the issue. But be remember, But you can call this type 1 aguna, type 2 aguna. Type 1 aguna is the woman whose husband is missing and we don't know if he's dead or alive and how do you establish death? Now if you have a body, if you have fingerprints, if you have dental records, that would be okay, right? But when you don't have any of those things, it's going to be difficult. And keep in mind that even finding certain body parts is not enough. Let me give you a simple example. Let's imagine you find a severed hand. At the site of 9-11, you find a hand. And through fingerprints, you can identify that the hand belongs to this husband. That doesn't show that he's dead. Maybe there's some guy walking around with a severed hand. You see? So even a body part cannot prove that somebody's dead. Maybe it was just amputated in the course of the accident, right? And the person has amnesia, or the person doesn't want to identify himself. So this is a real, real tough, uh, tough halachic uh, area, establishing death. But as I say, although I've talked about it a little bit, that's not our topic, right? We're not dealing with aguna type 1. We're dealing with aguna type 2. And aguna type 2 is we know the husband, and the husband is refusing to give again. Now, keep in mind, there will be also an aguna type 2.1, which I'll get to, and that is, can a man be an agun, it wouldn't be agun, agun is feminine, but can a man be an agun if his wife refuses to accept again? The answer is yes. Uh, there are not that many like that, but I will mention uh, the male agun as well. We have to be equal opportunity. Uh, there will be a male agun problem as well, but right now let's talk about the female agun pro- aguna problem. So let me talk about a number of things Uh, that can be done. First, be aware of this. There is an organization that operates both in the United States and in Israel that is called ORA. ORA is O-R-A. And this is a pun. ORA in Hebrew, of course, means light. But it stands, it's an acronym for Organization 
for the resolution of Agunot. And it is an organization that was established in New York. Actually, the head of the organization, Rabbi Jeremy Stern, lives in Beit Shemesh. He made Aliyah. And this is an organization that tries to help women who are in an Aguna situation. And what they do is, well, they try negotiation, first of all. Negotiation is the best thing if you can do it. But what they do is they organize things like rallies, Facebook rallies. They organize protests. They organize uh, boycotts. They organize different types of pressure that will make the husband feel like a real jerk unless he gives a, a get. Uh, we're going to see that halakhically there may be some problems here, but, but uh, Ora claims that over the past 10 years or so, they have gotten over 200 gets from husbands who otherwise would not have given a get to their wives. So that's a pretty good success record itself. In fact, there was a famous case in the U.S. I was actually involved in that case a little bit. Uh, I think I can mention the name because it's it's a very public case. I don't know if you ever heard of the uh, Tamar Epstein case. It was a case about a guy who refused to give a gut to his wife. He was a lawyer working for a uh, congressman. And, uh, and uh, Ora organized rallies day after day after day at the U.S. Capitol protesting. Uh, at the end of the day, okay, this was a very bizarre thing. At the end of the day, he did not give a get, but something else happened. Uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that. I mean, um, it was, okay. They, they, they found an annulment for the marriage, which was, which was really kind of crazy. Uh, but at the end, of the, he did not give a get. Now, Ora, I'll just express a personal opinion. Uh, I, I've had experiences as, as a rabbi uh, trying to convince men to give a get. And there is something you need to know about the psychology of a lot of people. When they get demonized and when they get portrayed as bad people, they actually get more stubborn and more resentful. And sometimes, therefore, these demonstrations are counterproductive because the demonstration that says you're an abuser, you're a get abuser, that's what the phrase that Ora likes to use, sometimes make people become more stubborn, more adamant because they want to justify their position. If somebody tells you you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're going to feel that you have to defend yourself even more. So although Ores had some success, I can tell you that in a number of cases, their techniques have backfired because they're trying to get a get by shaming and by embarrassing. And that can often make a person get very, very recalcitrant. So what the rabbi sometimes has to do is you have to play a little bit of reverse psychology. You have to kind of acknowledge the husband's grievances. Let the husband say, you know, what he doesn't like. Well, my wife did A, B, and C to me, even though it's not true. And you kind of say, play on his vanity. Say, you know, but you're better. You're a better person. You don't have to give in to the, uh, all the things that people do to you. And surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, psychologically that can sometimes be very, very effective. When a person feels they have been heard, when a person feels that they have been legitimated to a certain degree, they're then willing to do the right thing. So it depends on the husband. It's a very delicate balance. Sometimes people have to be shamed into doing the right thing. And sometimes it's the other way around. You have to build them up, compliment them, tell them what a tzaddik they are, you know, for giving a get and how you know, proud you are of them, even though you think the guy's a jerk, absolutely. But you, know, you build the person up, and then they'll often do the right thing. So uh, this is actually a very delicate thing. It's not so simple that you run to the demonstrations uh, right, uh, right away. Yeah.
that the system is in place where we kind of have to like mess with people's mind in order to well, uh, now again, you're going to see that this is also something a woman can do to a man. So this is not only a man-woman issue, but, but, but I know your question is not dependent on that. But it's dependent on him accepting it. Well, so it is dependent on him to a certain extent. Yeah, but, 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 but it's dependent on both people, meaning if the get process has to be mutual consent, mutual consent, then by definition, each party can hold the other party hostage. The man can hold the woman hostage by refusing to participate in giving the get, and the woman can hold the man hostage by refusing to participate in receiving the get. So each one can do this to the other. That that's, is true. But, it, but, but, the, but the question you're asking is, why should anybody be able to hold the other? Well, uh, it, it's a good question, but remember, think, think about the difference between the way a secular divorce works and the way a Jewish divorce works. A secular divorce is granted by the court. Husband doesn't divorce wife and wife doesn't divorce husband. The divorce is the court decrees you are not married. The court decrees. The parties request it, but the action of terminating the marriage is a decision of a court. In Judaism, even the Beit Din does not decree that the marriage is over. The parties who created the marriage have to be the ones who end the marriage. So a get requires the participation of the parties who created the marriage. The Beit Din is there to supervise. They supervise, but they don't terminate. The termination uh, is the action of the parties. So by definition, Whenever you have something that is the action of the parties, the non-cooperating party can uh, can hold up hold up the works. This is uh, this is inevitable. It's like the old saying that uh, you know the the NRA likes to say, uh, "Guns don't kill people." National Rifle Association, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Uh, on the other hand, people with guns kill people. <laughs> you know, uh, but the point basically is that in any institution. It is the behaviors of human beings that can make things bad. I mean, Hashem doesn't create evil in the world, but Hashem gave human beings free will. And free will can be exercised in evil ways. That's kind of the nature of the world Hashem created. Because free will maximizes the potential for goodness, but it does so by creating a potential for, for evil. And that's kind of the, a tragic compromise. If Hashem were to make a perfect world, there would be no free will. And then the goodness would not be truly, truly good in that way. Which is why, actually to go back to an earlier point, that is why the real solution of Aguna is to train people to be better people uh, in terms of ethics, in terms of hashkafa, in terms of kindness, in terms of uh, caring about others. Meaning, you don't start when they're married. You start you know, when they're in elementary school, when they're children, when they're in high school to learn to be considerate. You know, even if, God forbid, a marriage has to end, you can still have derech for each other, care for each other. It doesn't have to be with hatred. It doesn't have to be with vitriol. Right? So that, that's really kind of the problem. So the Aguna problem is ultimately a human relations problem that can only be fully solved when there is derech and a world where people care about each other. And, and the like. Okay, so uh, so we have Ora, which 
has some success. They've had some failures precisely because of the idea that the demonstrations have made people overly stubborn and have not appealed to their vanity and the like. Okay, so now let's talk about what a woman does. A woman wants to get, if the husband says okay, they call up a basin and they can have a get uh, in a week. Very, very fast. No problem. What if man says no? What could a woman do? So here I'm going to have to take you through two maps. What happens in Israel and what happens in the rest of the world? Because you have to know Israel is absolutely different than the rest of the world. Of course, in many ways. But in, a, in, in particular, it's different because in Eretz Israel, the rabbinic courts are part of the legal system of the state of Israel. That is not true in any other country. In America, for example, you can have a Beit Din in Manhattan, in Crown Heights, in Muncie, in Lakewood, but the Beit Din of Crown Heights, Manhattan, Muncie, Lakewood is not a legal court. In the state of Israel, with respect to marriage and divorce, a Beit Din is a legal court of the state of Israel. It's very important that you know that because that means what a Beit Din does in Israel is legally much more powerful than what a Beit Din does in America. And therefore, I'm first going to take you through what happens in Israel. The first thing the woman does is she files, she initiates, she files a petition with a Beit Din where she lives. So it could be the Beit Din of Yerushalayim, Tel Aviv, Bnei Brak, Rehovot, saying that is she is seeking a get from her husband. The Beit Din will issue a summons to the husband to respond to her charges and to come to the Beit Din. 30 days, whatever it be. The, the Hebrew word for summons is hazmana. Hasmana actually means an invitation, but that's a, here it means a summit. I can give you a hasmana to my bar, son's bar mitzvah, or I can give you a hasmana to a beitin, but okay, one is a little more serious. Okay. Now, if the husband doesn't show up, if he just doesn't show up, he can be arrested. It's like contempt of court. He can go to jail for not showing up, but okay. Assuming he shows up, which most of the time he will, so the Beit Din holds a hearing in which they can bring evidence, testimony. Now, at the hearing, the Beit Din decides does the woman have a halachic right to get a get? Now, what basis is that decided? Meaning that's the issue before the Beit Din is does the woman have the halachic right for a get? Okay, so now we have to digress. What are the grounds where a woman has a halachic right to a get? So here, huge, huge machlokas between two of the greatest medieval authorities, Rambam, Maimonides, and Rabbeinu Tam. Have you heard of Rabbeinu Tam? You know Rabbeinu Tam is. Rabbeinu Tam is Rashi's grandson. He lived in France. 
His name was Rav Yaakov ben Meir. And the reason why he was called Tom, Tom means the simple, perfect one, because Yaakov Avinu is called in the Chumash, Tom. So Yaakov, his name is Yaakov, he's called Rabbeinu Tom, the perfect one. Maimonides says something very, very good. Maimonides says, a woman is entitled to a get if she says it is disgusting for her to stay married to her husband. Meaning, according to Maimonides, this is very interesting, she has an absolute right to say, I want to get. Because, Maimonides' language, a woman is not a captive slave that she has to remain married to a man that she finds repulsive in terms of living with. So according to Maimonides, it's very important. A woman has the halachic right to a get without giving any reason at all other than I don't want to be married to him anymore. She doesn't have to specify the reasons. She doesn't have to give a justification. She just says, Mois alai. Mois alai means it's disgusting to me. I don't want to be married. And Maimonides' language is, she is not a captive maidservant that she's forced to stay in a marriage that she doesn't want. So according to Maimonides, it would be extraordinarily easy for a woman to get a based-in decision that she's entitled to again. It would be very easy. In other words, she would get it 100% of the time. I mean, they might say, did you go for counseling? They will ask you, did you go for counseling? You're not going to do this until there was counseling or something. But at the end of the day, she says she wants to get they're going to give her a decision. Now remember, they don't give her the get. Be sure you're following this. They give her a decision. She's entitled to a get. We'll see what happens after that. That is Maimonides. Wait, say that again? The Bastin doesn't give her a get. Remember, the husband has to give her a get. The Bastin gives her a psak that she is entitled to a get. But that has no... Obligation on him oh, no, no. It certainly creates an obligation on him, but then they have to enforce it. What if he doesn't... In other words... So they a suggestion. Kind of. No, it's not a suggestion. It's an order. It's an order. It's an order. But an order does not div- create the divorce. Right. If, you're, if a man is ordered to give a get, he still has to give a get. We have to figure out, what if he doesn't do it? How do you... But, it, but it is, it's not a suggestion. It is an order that he must comply with. Now... So on the order level, according to Maimonides, it's very easy for a woman to get the order. Very easy. But that's Maimonides. There is, however, another view. And the other view is that of the great Rabbeinu Tan, Rashi's grandson who was considered to be, again, a phenomenally great rabbinic authority. And he disagrees with Maimonides. And he says, in order for a woman to be entitled, entitled, to get Allah get, she has to have some grounds for which they are for which there must be some substantiation. Those grounds would be like physical abuse, severe emotional abuse, non-support, he doesn't support me, a refusal to have relations or impotency perhaps even, uh, fraud, things that she was not aware of. So, like Rabbeinu Tam, she does not have, this is a very important machlokas, she does not have the unfettered right 
to get a get order by simply saying, I don't want to be married anymore to him. She has to have some objective criteria that would make her request justified. And the Beit Din would have to determine. Now you see that that's already going to be a, a subjective process. Let's say, for example, she says, um, I want to get because he has abused me. So the Beit Din will then have to have a hearing. Like, what happened? They can't just, uh, what happened? So let's say she says, one time I was late to a chasna, so he slapped me in the face, knocked me down. Now, some people may hear that and be absolutely shocked. A man knocked his wife down. Of course she's entitled to again. Of course she cannot stay in a marriage that a man behaves that way. Other rabbis might say, hmm, he only did it once, but not once, you know. In other words, this is tricky. The problem is, halachically, there is no concrete definition of what is called, I mean, some cases might be obvious, you know, he beat me with a metal pipe. You know, some cases are going to be obvious. But there'll be some cases where, depending on the basin, one basin may say, this is the worst abuse, and another basin may say, it's tolerable. For example, I don't want to mention names of communities, in some communities, it might be accepted sociologically for moderate wife uh, beating. I mentioned beating, moderate wife hitting. In other communities, it's absolutely abhorrent. In fact, the, I don't want to mention specific ones, but, uh, but, but some older, uh, okay, some, some older Sephardic communities had such a, such a practice. I mean, they, they took it from the, from the Arabs themselves. In fact, do you, know, do you know the expression, the rule of thumb? When you, we talk about an approximation, we say the rule of thumb. Do you know where that expression comes from? This, this comes from uh, legal uh, British common law, where in the Middle Ages, a man was permitted to beat his wife if the stick was not thicker than his thumb. So if a person was arrested because he was beating his wife, they would take the stick and they would put it on his thumb and they would say, oh, okay, if it's not bigger than your thumb, it's okay. That, that's the, the expression comes from the rule of thumb. It literally was the rule of thumb. So that means that men that had big thumbs could get away with worse, worse stuff. Obviously, from our perspective, from a religious perspective, from the ethics of the Torah, hitting one's wife, actually hitting anybody, not just one's wife, is a tremendous, tremendous avera. But all I'm saying is, in terms of what's abuse, that's going to be a difficulty sometimes. And emotional abuse is even more difficult. Emotional abuse. Well, you know, everybody, you know, everybody fights, every married couple, maybe not every, but every married, most married couples have occasional fights. And in an occasional fight, a voice is raised, either husband or wife or both, you know, when does that become emotional abuse? I mean, this is not, a sim- this is not the simplest issue. A person may scream emotional abuse when it's just the normal dynamics of marriage. Or some people may look at it as normal. Some people may look at it as abnormal. The point is, Rabbeinu Tam introduced something that makes it much, much harder for a woman 
to get a halachic decision that she's entitled to again. Like the Rambam, again, just to be sure you understand this, there was no need to go into any of this. She simply says, I want out. She would get a decision that husband must, must, not may, must give her again. According to Rabbeinu Tam, she has to allege and substantiate things like abuse, non-support, abandonment, extreme emotional pain, fraud, and the like. Now, even like Rabbeinu Tam, there'll be many cases where it's fairly simple, and she'll get her psak fairly simply, but there'll be a lot of cases where it might be hard. And especially when you get into a he said, he said, she said problem. She says this happened, he says no. You don't have witnesses. Like Rabbeinu Tam, she's in a difficult situation. So, who do we paskin like? Do we paskin like Rambam? I mean, in other words, what will a basin in Israel do? A woman comes to a Beit Din, she files, it's called opening a tick, opening a file. She files a desire for divorce, the husband gets a hazmana. She says, I don't want to be married. Do we follow Maimonides, that she gets the psak? Or do we follow Rabbeinu Tam, which is much more problematical? The short answer is, again, and maybe you're not going to be happy with this answer, is we follow Rabbeinu Tam. So, will a woman who seeks a get automatically get a halachic decision that the husband must give her a get? No, she won't. Because like Rabbeinu Tam, her entitlement, yes, the university we passing like Rabbeinu Tam. Uh, this is, I'm talking about Israel right now, but the same thing is true in well, the reason is, well, the reason why we Paskin like Rabbeinu Tam is because the Shulchan Aruch Paskin like Rabbeinu Tam. So, so we're, we're following the Shulchan Aruch. Now, why did the Shulchan Aruch follow Rabbeinu Tam is actually a mystery, and I'll tell you why it's a mystery. Uh, the Shulchan Aruch, Rav Yosef Karo, nine out of ten times follows the Rambam. In almost every halachic area, Rav Yosef Karo follows the Rambam. In this area, Rav Yosef Karo follows Rabbeinu Tam. It's not clear why he felt Rabbeinu Tam was more authoritative. But I will say this. I, I want to give you good news and bad news. The bad news might be that the Beit Din follows Rabbeinu Tam. The good news for, for a woman, from a woman's perspective, is that the Batei Din in recent years have been much more sensitive to emotional abuse issues than they were in the past. So even if they follow Rabbeinu Tam, they will be sensitive to abusive type behaviors which they might have ignored in the past. In the past they would say, oh, your husband yells at you all the time, that's, that's normal, that's what men do. Today, there is a greater sensitivity to the emotional pain that behaviors go. So you might even call this a modified Rabbeinu Tam, meaning they don't go as far as the Rambam. Remember, like the Rambam, she doesn't have to allege anything. She just says, I want out of here. They don't do, they don't do that. They do not follow the Rambam, but they follow Rabbeinu Tam, but they apply it today in a broader way, understanding emotional, emotional uh, pain. Uh, so this is where we're at. Now, this is stage one. Will she get a psak? Will she not get a psak? A decision. Question two is, what happens when she gets the decision? What then happens? 
Okay, so we'll continue with this. I want to take it. I want to take you through all of the steps, and that's in Israel. And then we'll look at what happens in New York, because New York is going to be a different, a different situation. So it's only if you're out of the sheet can prove physical or emotional abuse. Yes. Yes. And that's, there's nothing else. Oh no no no! 